What is going on, 1030? How we doing, 1030? How we doing? Good, good to hear that clapping. Good to hear that clapping. Hey, my name is Brian. If we haven't met, and as John said, we are in this teaching series called Unlikely. This is good news for us, this teaching series, because we're learning about a king who was unlikely by world standards. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I am unlikely for the role that I want to step into or the role that I'm currently in. So we're hoping that this is an encouraging for you as you think about whatever place you are at now or wherever you're trying, reaching, desiring to go. We've looked at how how David was unlikely because he was young, but he was anointed. How he was unlikely because he was weak compared to Goliath, but because of God, he was strong. And we're going to be continuing these themes this morning. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a story. Candace and I, my wife, we've been married for nearly 17 years. I know you want to clap to that. I know you're proud of me. All right. And also Candace, probably more proud of Candace. I understand. I like to say that, you know, our marriage can almost vote. We're getting to that point. It's a threshold to celebrate it. But early on in our first year of marriage, we decided that we're going to move to the East Coast. We're going to move to Massachusetts. And I remember uh, before we moved there, we wanted to explore the areas that we would potentially move to. And so we scraped up what money we had and we rented a Pontiac Sunfire. Remember Pontiacs? doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Sorry, Pontiac lovers. But we rented this Pontiac Sunfire. I remember it feeling kind of sporty, you know, and uh, we were driving over Massachusetts. We booked some Motel 6s, and so we were there, uh, you know, moving from one Motel 6 to another and our Pontiac Sunfire on the, the Massachusetts freeways. And I remember at one point during our travels, scoping out some of the places that we would potentially move to, we got into this thing that I, maybe I'm the only you know, married couple, maybe we're the only married couple that's ever experienced, uh, you could call it a fight. Have you ever experienced that? And it went on with just kind of like, you took the wrong direction. You know, this was before smartphones. Remember those papers, MapQuest, you had to print them out? And if you set it down, it was easy to forget which page was which. And so it began with pretty simple, you know, like, uh, Brian, where are we supposed to be going? Well, Candace, you've got the papers and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, it escalated and escalated for about 20 minutes. There's this tense conversation. And then all of a sudden, there was this silence for 10 seconds. And one of us said, when was the last time we ate? <laughs> and then we laughed because we realized we hadn't had breakfast that morning. We were very aware that there was not much in the bank account. We were in an unfamiliar area. And of course, conflict happens in that space. If you're married and you've ever experienced that, if you have any friends and you've ever been in an environment like that, you know that conflict happens in that space. In fact, I want to suggest that conflict is actually part of what it means to be human. Think about it. You know, us humans, we got different values and different beliefs and we got different expectations and different priorities and and different ways of seeing the world. And when you take all of those differences and you put them in close proximity together, what else would you expect but a little bit of conflict? You could call it the cold porcupine syndrome. You know, 
where you're cold, so you get close to another person, then all of a sudden they poke you, and you're like, well, I'm getting back. But then you're cold, and so you get close again, and you end up in this little bit of back and forth. Maybe you've been there. But admittedly, there are times when we experience conflict, you know, that it doesn't end with a laugh because there's still some remaining pain. That's what we're looking at today. What do you do when you find yourself in conflict that you don't necessarily know how to find your way out of? This is the situation that David was in. David was an unlikely king because he was attacked. But he was a king because he was protected. What does it look like to be like David, attacked but protected? To catch you up on the story, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 5 to 12. But to catch you up on the story, David has moved on from defeating Goliath to residing in the courts of Saul, the one who was the king, though he did not have the anointing anymore, but he had the position of a king. And he was in the courts of Saul, playing music and commanding armies, and everyone loved him. We pick it up in verse 5. Whatever mission Saul uh, sent him on, David was so successful, and Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David killed the Philistine, the woman came from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. He's like, shuffle that playlist. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but he, we, he, me only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he usually did, uh, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So before we look at the life of David, and we will look at the life of David and and ask the question and get the answers to what do we do when we find ourselves in a conflicted space. But before we look at the life of David, it's important to understand what I'm calling the psyche of Saul. The psyche of Saul. Now, it's important to understand the psyche of Saul because when we understand the psyche of Saul, we begin to understand if there is some Saul in us. Okay? Now, what was going on with Saul? Saul saw that the kingdom was leaving his hands right in front of him. If you're familiar with the story, if you've been around Anchor for the last few weeks, or if you've read this, this part of 1 Samuel, you know that Saul had disobeyed God on multiple occasions, and Samuel, the prophet of Israel, had come face to face with Saul and said, hey, because you've done this, God is removing the mantle of kingship from you and giving it to someone else. Talk about putting a little bit of an anxiety seed in a king. And all of a sudden, he's looking around, wondering, who's the person that's going to take the kingdom from me? 
And this guy rises up. First, it comes with him defeating Israel's enemy, and then it seems like everybody loves him. In fact, if you read the first bit of chapter 18, you'll find that Jonathan, Saul's own son, saw him as like the closest friend he had ever had. And then we see that the women come out and they start singing. They write a new song and they're singing it and dancing. And like David has slayed his 10,000s and Saul, he got a few too. And all of a sudden Saul gets so frustrated because of that, but everybody loves David. And then the people in the army, they love David. And so Saul's aware of a couple things. Saul's aware that the mantle of kingship has been removed from him, even though he remains in the office of king, and he sees this guy rising up that has king written all over him. He smells like he's got the anointing. And so Saul starts to freak out. It says this, uh, it says that he saw, he says, what more? He says, what more? can I have but the kingdom? He's looking at David. What more can he have but the kingdom? Here's the, here's the thing to get. Saul saw something leaving his hands and he clung onto it tighter. Saul saw something leaving his hands and he clung onto it tighter. You see, You know, in our life, when we see something leaving our hands, we have an option. We can release it, let it go, uh, or we can hold on to it tighter. And this, this is actually something that, sometimes there's things that we need to hold on to tighter, and sometimes there's things that we need to let go. And the difference between the two is discernment, discerning which do I need to let go of and which do I need to hold on to tighter. For example, if your marriage seems like it's slipping a little bit, If you find yourself not engaging in conversation in the hours after your kids go down or in the evening before bed or after they've left your home and you find yourself, you know, putting a little bit of a wall up, finding yourself a little bit more regularly conflicted, you have an option. And you need to grab a hold of your marriage and fight for your marriage and not let it go in that point. You need to work and pursue your spouse. Show them that you love them. Speak their love languages in that particular situation. We don't let that one go. Similarly with a young child, young teenager, making decisions that are taking them down paths that would only lead to their pain. And so what you do in that situation, you don't just kind of step back and say, well, good luck. Hopefully you figure that one out. No, you engage and you build trust if trust was lost and you show love and you fight for that relationship because you are their parent. You hold on to that tighter. But there are other things that you, in that situation, let go of. For example, could be an 18-year-old. They're going off to college. They're going off to trade school. Or they just got a gig and they're, they're moving out of the house. Now, it would be very awkward for dad to come live in the dorm room with their kiddo, right? You've got to release. That doesn't mean you're not their dad or their mom anymore, but there's a new relationship, and you have to let them step into that if they're going to continue to develop. You stifle their development and your own development if you grab a hold of that, wanting a previous, previous way of relating to continue ad nauseum. You need to release in a situation like that. It doesn't mean you let go of the relationship, but you allow it to move into a new stage and allow them to develop. Similarly, sometimes with a role at a workplace where you might have a role in your workplace that you love, 
And it's something you've done for a while. But then there's this like new person and they just smell like they got the anointing on them. And you have a situation where you can grab a hold of that and protect your role and shield off another person or you can say, hey, you know what? You are uniquely gifted for this thing. Could we talk about a plan where you get brought in on this and I give you opportunities so that you can grow and develop? You see, Saul could not imagine himself without being king. Saul could not imagine himself without being king. And if we find ourselves in a situation where we can't imagine ourselves being ourselves without the thing that we're clinging onto, then we have some work to do. We have some processing to do. Because here's the reality, is that our identity isn't external in something we're holding onto. Our identity is in Christ, and when we know that our identity is really rooted in Christ and it can't be taken away by anything, then we can release and bless and empower others, even at our own expense, because we know that we're good we know that we're good. But if we find ourselves unable to think of ourselves without the thing that we're clinging to, then we have some work to do. And even this, if we find ourselves picking up a little bit of a spear when we feel threatened, we have some work to do. You know what I'm talking about? A little sideways comment, a little bit of gossip, kind of feather it in so it doesn't seem so bad, but you know that comes from that a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of stress, a little bit of fear because you're trying to protect yourself and you're, you're, you're kind of putting a, a little bit of blame on that person because you want to protect yourself and you feel threatened. If you find yourself with a little bit of Saul in you, you have some work to do with God. And the work is coming to terms with the fact that that identity is really because of what God has done in you and not determined by anything external that you're holding on to. But now we're looking at uh, not just Saul, but David. Like, what do you find, what, what, what do you do when you find yourself when a spear's coming at you? Well, the first thing we do, the first, first thing we learn from David in this story is what I'm calling is that we have to know our anointing or you have to know your anointing. Check this out. 1 Samuel 18, verses 11 to 13, it says, and he hurled it. This is Saul. He's throwing the spear, thinking I'll turn David into a poster. But David eluded him twice, so Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Hear that? Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with David, because David was anointed and had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul sent him away and gave him command a thousand, and, and David led the troops the battle back. There's this situation where, where even Saul could see it, that God was with David. And I have to imagine that David was aware that he was anointed. I remember, I have to imagine that David, in the situation where the spears were coming at him, in his mind, went back to the place where Samuel Samuel put oil over his head, looked him in the eyes, and said, you're going to be king, David. You know, there's a difference between conceptual knowledge and experiential knowledge. Conceptual knowledge is David getting the oil poured over his head and, and hearing, you're going to be king. But experiential knowledge is when the spears are thrown at you. Do you know you're anointed then? Do you know that the attack won't stand because of who God says you are? 
that ultimately you're protected even as you're attacked. Knowing your anointing really takes real experiential shape when you're in the fires and when it's actually tested. Now, there are um, certain sections of the church that have a misunderstanding of anointing and in our current day see leaders as anointed or teachers as anointed, but don't understand that all of God's people are anointed. Check this out. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. He says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That's good news. They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Now read this. Check this out. He anointed us. Paul doesn't say, he anointed me right there. He says, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, what's the big deal you're saying about this anointing thing? How does this help me in my everyday life? Well, the idea of anointing is connected to royalty. This is what Samuel did to David. Samuel went to David and said, you're going to be king. In the ancient world, the idea of putting oil on, on someone's head mean that their king or their queen, that their destiny is settled and sealed. They're moving towards royalty. And this is Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. That's the word Messiah. It means anointed one, which was a kingly title. So that's why we say God's kingdom because Jesus is the king because he is the Messiah of his kingdom. But here's the cool thing. Because what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for those that follow him and trust in him, we too are anointed. Meaning that we too are kings and queens in the royal lineage of King Jesus. That means that God has conferred a status on you. God has conferred an identity on you. That the world may something, say something about you that whittles you down here when you're basing your sense of identity along the, um, the plans and plays that the world offers. But God has conferred a mantle of kingship and queenship on you. And from God's eyes, your identity is settled and sealed. And when you know that, things start to change. But it's important to move from conceptual knowledge to experiential knowledge with this. Conceptual knowledge is saying, yeah, I remember I heard that in church one time. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, my eyes got glassy when I sang that song, you know, one time. You know, I remember that I went to youth camp and I, you know, I, I, I heard that truth. And yeah, I, I believe that. But experiential knowledge is when a spear is being thrown at you. And you have the wherewithal to not react in kind and to know you're safe and internally be more aware of the fact that from God's eyes, you are a king and a queen, not the summation of an attack. You see, when you know your anointing, you become resilient in the face of opposition. You're drawing strength from a source that the world doesn't know anything of. You're becoming empowered with the source that the world cannot tap into. And so you become actually compelling to the world because you're drawing strength in a way that the world is like, wait, where are you getting that power? Well, you're knowing you are anointed. 
Anchor, there is nothing that I want more for you, for this community, those that are watching online, those that are in Lincoln, those that are all of our gatherings, for us to be people that we know are anointing, that we walk out into the world, the world that would exhaust us and weary us, knowing that our identity isn't decided by a spear that's thrown at us, but, but decided by what God says about us that he has poured out his identity over us and we are kings and queens, not independent of him, but in the lineage of King Jesus. When we know that, everything changes. Not just conceptually know that, but experientially know that. Now, just because you know your anointing though, well, let me say this. The point of knowing your anointing is being resilient and growing in resilience in the midst of a wearying and exhausting world. The point of knowing your anointing is not so that you can endure evil forever. There is a point where you might know your anointing and you might get attacked, but you might say, you know what, just because I'm anointed doesn't mean I have to continue to endure this attack. going back a little bit about the power of anointing. We'll talk a little bit more about when it's time to leave in a second, but going back a little bit about the power of anointing, there's a, an African-American historian and theologian named Howard Thurman. And he, writing, a professor at Boston University, writing uh, to, uh, about um, African-American spirituals during slavery in, in the United States. He talked about what the African-American spiritual gave the slave. And he says this. He says, it taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of uh, those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as the raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a right to live. What did they know? They knew their anointing. That doesn't mean that they say, I'm going to be here forever or I'm going to let the slave master do whatever. No, that, that's not an excuse to endure evil, but it is a source of strength in the midst of evil. So, there does come a time where even if you know your anointing, you have to ask the question, okay, okay, if I, if I keep getting spears at me, what does that mean about, am I, do I have to stay here? If I keep getting spears thrown at me, then do I have to continue to endure? No. So what we see David do is that he moves from knowing his anointing to discerning the situation. I love, it's very simple. In fact, all of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel 18, you could say, is, is David discerning the situation. Is this a safe place for me? Is this the place that I need to be? Is the toxicity of Saul to the point where I actually need to leave? And at one point, he brings Jonathan into the equation, and Jonathan says, hey, he talks to Saul on David's behalf, and then Jonathan comes back to David and says, hey, I think it's actually okay for you to live here, continue to live here. And now what Jonathan was actually wrong. <laughs> Saul was toxic and David needed to leave. But what we see is a principle where David and brings Jonathan into it and helps him discern the situation together. See, when we're discerning the situation, it involves two things. It involves first, we bring friends into the discernment process. Okay, okay, I know I'm good. 
I know that God has set his seal upon me, that I'm in, in the royalty of King Jesus, but I keep getting these blows sent my way. So friend, would you help me discern if it's right for me to leave or if I should stay? We invite friends into the discernment process. But then we also invite God into the discernment process. We don't just make a management decision based upon simply pros and cons and then act upon that, though that is a good practice. We invite God into the discernment process. I love how uh, David, writing a poem, a psalm later on in his life, said this in Psalm 139, 1 and 2, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, and you perceive my thoughts from afar. David invited God into the discernment process as is evidence in that psalm. You're saying, God, okay, would you help me sift through my own motivations, my own thoughts, my own brokenness to determine is there anything in me that, that is actually unknowing to me, to me even, throwing a spear back. Here's the principle, is that in the story we read, there is a David and there's a Saul, but in the real life of our lives, sometimes there's a David and Saul in us, and there's a David and Saul in the person we're in conflict with. And so sometimes we feel like we get spears thrown at us, but actually, if we look closely, we're throwing a couple spears too. I remember uh, a pastor that I know of said when he's doing pastoral counseling, he'll bring somebody in uh, to his office. And as he's talking up through the pastoral counseling, somebody's saying, you know, that all of a sudden the problem is not in the room. The problem is out there. There's somebody doing something that's affecting this person. And, and so he has this moment where he says, okay, it doesn't seem like we can necessarily solve that problem because that person is not in the room at this point, And it might not even be wise for them to be in the room. And we can talk about strategies and how to do this, but what we need to do right now at the start is he puts a, gets the whiteboard out, draws a big circle, and says, what part of the pie do you think you can take responsibility for? What part of the pie can you own? And usually it's a very slender piece. It's like this small. And in pastoral wisdom, this person says, well, let's for a little while just talk about that part. You see, as Martin Luther, the theologian, Reformation theologian said, he said, we are simultaneously saints and sinners. And you don't have to live very long to realize that all of us have this saint and sinner complex, this Saul and David complex, where we have both of these things. We are the recipient of spears and the thrower of spears. And when we discern the situation, we are able to more clearly understand what is the dynamic at play. David needed to discern the situation before he made the move, but he did have to make the move. He came to the conclusion that he had to make a move. This is the next step. Where you move from knowing your anointing, discerning the situation, and then you make a move. You know, when we discern the situation, and even if we feel a measure of something we can own, that doesn't mean that even if we have to own something, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to stay in that particular toxic environment. There's three options after discerning the situation. And the first is that we do make a move. First Samuel 19, 9 through 10 says, an evil spirit, this is going forward, this is like the third time that this has happened. 
But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul, and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And while David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall, pulled a little juke move. That night, David made good his escape. Do you see that? That night, David made good his escape. David knows his anointing, but David said, this isn't a great place for me to kick it any longer. Now, it's interesting that he, what he did was to make the move, he had to bring a couple people in to help him. Jonathan and Michal help him. Michal's his wife. Interestingly enough, the daughter of Saul. Talk about family drama. But Michal and Jonathan help him find his way to safety. We need friends. When we find ourselves in a situation that is negatively affecting us, and it seems after a period of discernment that we need to leave. We need friends to help us with that. David, again, is our guide. But sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where it's not to run, but it's just to pause. Just to pause. Perfectly described by Facebook, take a break. <laughs> Some of you guys, you know that one? You don't have to block people on Facebook. You can just take a break for a little while, and then it'll come back again. Well, yeah, okay, I'm done taking a break. Sometimes in situations, in relationships, in work environments, the thing is that we just, we just need to catch our breath and then reevaluate and then reengage. And the best thing to do in that situation is that afterward, we, we communicate with the person that there's conflict with. We say, hey, I'm taking a break, and then reengaging, we communicate again. If you don't do that, it's just called ghosting, right? And it leaves people with questions. What happened? What happened? And sometimes, sometimes the decision, the, the move to make is not to pause or to run, but sometimes it's to stay. After the period of discernment, you realize, oh, there was more Saul in me than I realized. Wow. And so we own it in humility with the other person. And if God is there and if there's people helping us, sometimes the other person owns it and it becomes a beautiful thing where actually reconciliation happens, which is God's heart. There's these three options. Worship team, you can come up. Where sometimes it means we have to move. We have to make a move out of the situation. Sometimes we, we just hit pause. Sometimes it means that we stay after the discernment process. But here's the thing, if I'm you, and this has been my experience this week preparing for this, if I'm you, it's like, whoa, this is heavy. Thinking about the friend that might be in a situation or if we're in one of these situations, this is heavy. How do I find the courage to engage in these steps? The way that you find the courage to engage in the steps of knowing your anointing, discerning the situation, and making a move is looking first to the ultimate anointed one. When we look to the ultimate anointed one, King Jesus, we recognize that he was uh, more innocent than David. He was without sin. David was just like us. He was great and good, but also sinful. Jesus, the ultimate anointed one, was without sin. 
But Jesus, the ultimate anointed one, didn't dodge the spear, but took it, took the full weight of our sin on his shoulders so that we might be called kings and queens in the line of Jesus. But did not let that affect him or did not let that defeat him, but rather endured the pain of the cross and rose again triumphantly, telling to us that death, pain, defeat is not the last word, but there is resurrection. We are people of the resurrection. And here's the beautiful thing. When we first look to the ultimate anointed one, when we say, Jesus, would you be my substitute? Would you be my leader? I invite you to be the king in my life. When we do that, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, there is courage. There is strength. There is conviction to know that you are anointed by God's grace, not your works, to have courage to discern the situation with clarity and honesty, and have courage to make a move. Would you stand? I want to pray over us as a community as we step into this last song. You might extend a hand as a symbolic gesture saying, God, I'm present and I'm open and I'm available to you. There's nothing magic about it, but you'll find that when we allow, when we do things like symbolic gestures, like extending a hand, it puts our heart in a heart posture where we're saying, God, I'm present before you. So Spirit of God, come. Help all of us in this room to know our anointing, to know that the mantle of royalty is given us because of the grace of God. Give us clarity when we need to discern situations of conflict. Help us to have courage to make the move, whatever that is. And Spirit of God, remind us that you first made the move, not away from us, but towards us. Not from away from pain, but towards it. So that we might be yours.